On this week's Inside Marketing, I'll be joined by John Fanning. We are going to have a chat about his last book, The Mandarin, The Musician and The Mage. And we'll also talk about some advertising campaigns that he liked and worked on. So join me as I talk to John Fanning on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by John Fanning. So John, first of all, before we get into it, how are you doing? How's life and what are you up to at the moment? Um, life is good. Thanks, Dave. I'm still lecturing in Smurfoot and in the Quinn Business School. And I do the term from uh, January until May or June. So I'm off now for six months. So everything's fine. I, exams are finished. Grading is finished. Good. I there hope students go. are satisfied. There you go. I know because I know I, I've been in to your to your um, class before to to give some updates. And yeah. God knows what you wanted me in for. Oh yeah, it was Liam. You gave yeah what Liam passed it on to me as Liam does. He, he got me involved. Get hospital passed it to me. Um, and then he passed it on to Shenda, if I remember correctly. Oh yeah, he's great for that. So uh, yeah, but he, he came in and gave me moral support when I when I was it was doing before. So he um, did. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God, I can't believe it's like I'm on ninety eight or episodes or ninety seven or ninety eight, and I haven't had you on yet. So um, yeah, so it's it's great to it's great to speak to you. It's great to have you on, and great to see you again. And, and you're looking well. So um, yeah. Uh, so a lot to get through. I, as I was, we were chatting before um, off mic, and I was saying, God, like I don't know how do I, how do I, how, what can I pick your brain on? Because I could have you here for about ten hours, you know, for talk about it, and not, not never mind even the book, the Mandarin, the musician, and the mage, which I, I was saying to you earlier on. I read that, and I read it thinking it was an advertising book, and then I don't know, it was about seventy pages into it, and I was thinking, when is he going to start talking about advertising this book? And then I realized this has nothing to do with advertising, but I thoroughly enjoyed nothing. it anyway. So, so I do want to talk to you a bit about okay. that because I think it's super interesting, um, and it has a, it resonates a lot with what what's going on in the world we live in today. Obviously, because marketing is is not completely unrelated to the economy or, you know, how, how consumers and our cultural identity and, and all those things. So, um, but yeah, right. I got, let's crack on. Um, is the best thing to do. So I, the Ireland I grew up on, like, I, I know there was kind of, I think I was too young. I didn't see the mass immigration. I was lucky to get into advertising when I got in. So I don't have, I've, fairly fond memories and fairly positive memories of Ireland in terms of jobs and career paths and that kind of stuff. And I kind of just miss them. It was a very tail end of it, I think, when I came in, came in to work. Um, but anyone, you know, old, slightly older than me, even a little bit older than me, Ireland was a pretty bleak country, like pre, pre-70s, pre wasn't it? How bad was it? Yeah, I'll just give you one figure and to tell you how bad it was. Um, the Three out of four people born in Ireland in the 1930s and 40s emigrated in the 1950s. So three quarters of the people. Wow. And that's pretty huge. So the, the 50s was very depressed. And that really was the start of what I was writing about. Um, it was so depressed that there was a young, and it was unprecedented for the time, a 39-year-old getting to be the secretary of the Department of Finance, uh, and T.K. Whittaker, and he actually went to De Valera, who was the eminent Republican kind of, you know, freedom fighter, uh, very austere figure. And he said, look, things are so bad, we may have to consider rejoining uh, the British Commonwealth. Mm. Uh, we can't survive on our own. It was that bad. And I think that, that set the warning signals to the political class. 
And that led the way for Whitaker's economic development program, which was basically to stop all the protectionism and opening up the country to the wider world. Hmm. And it wasn't just economically, it was socially, politically, you know, it, it involved everything at the end of the day. But it was a shock at the time. And I think you were interested in whether some industries weren't able to cope with that, and they weren't. There was, hmm. a, you know, a lot, of, a lot of businesses collapsed at the time. But the big outcome of that program for economic expansion was the expansion of the IDA, which had been set up beforehand, and the IDA were kind of given their head in the 1960s and began to attract business into Ireland. Mm. And it's funny because when I, when when I was reading through the book, I mean, you have the, we have this idea of semi states, and I, I suppose they're they're seen as 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 the opposite of of private enterprise, and by private enterprise, I mean well run com, um, companies and private industry. And and but but back in the day. That was not the case. So, like, government bodies were kind of very, very um, they were very, we were way ahead of our time. And, and the, the heads of those government bodies and semi-state bodies, it was revolutionary thinking, but they were led by what would arguably be the top business minds and people in, in the country. Is that true? Well, it wasn't so much that they were actually civil servants and they were just seconded from civil service departments out into the, what they call the state-sponsored bodies or semi-state mm. bodies. But they were the brightest and the best of mm. the country. They were highly creative as well as, you know, be very hardworking. They were also, because of the conditions at the time, they were incredibly patriotic. They were acutely aware of the fact that they were saving the country and that they were involved in a nation-building job. And that was a big, uh, you know, that was a big factor in their thinking. But the point that I was trying to get across is they were incredibly creative. Yeah. I mean, the Shannon development scheme was a highly innovative scheme which brought a lot of jobs into that area and it was when the IDA who were a highly innovative creative organization when they were going to China first and they were going to China in the 1980s uh, which is before you know we now know that China is going to be the biggest economy in the world but in the 1980s it wouldn't have been that clear and the question they kept being asked when they went to China and people found they were from Ireland is O'Regan. And that was a Regan who was the head of the um, uh, the Shannon development. And the concept of the duty-free airport was of huge interest to the Chinese, and they kind of imitated it. Right. Uh, they also invented Irish coffee in the bar there. Really? I mean, yeah, it was it was that was a government-sponsored new product piece of new product development. So they were very creative, and the people in the IDA worked. They worked. They were highly imaginative mm. in the way they went about. Uh, pursuing, uh, you know, businesses and and businesses that they wanted. I mean, I think I do quote the example of there was one business that were desperate for. I can't think of the name of it in California. As could have been Microsoft or something like that. And the only doubts that Microsoft had was was there going to be enough of a particular type of engineer right. in Ireland that they could employ. So the IDA contacted every single engineering graduate who had ever gone to. Uh, Irish universities and were now working around the world and flew them all into California for a meeting and said, here they are. These are the people. Right. So they really, uh, they were very imaginative. Yeah. And that's, yeah, because it's not, it's not what we would, I suppose, because like one of the unintended consequences, and we, we'll touch on this later on, was that, you, you know, private enterprise or capitalism has, hadn't really developed yet. So the best and brightest were in those roles until now they, were now, now they wouldn't be, they would be, you would imagine they'd be running their Probably own startups not. and things Although like that. I wouldn't, now. I wouldn't, 
Yeah, I wouldn't agree totally that they wouldn't. There are still some people who are highly motivated. Mm. And certainly there are a lot of Irish public servants who are, who played big roles in the United Nations at the moment and in the EU. Um, but like another example would be the tourism. Uh, Board Fawcett was one of the most innovative and one of the first national tourist organizations. And a lot of the practices that they developed in the 1960s would be imitated by other countries' tourist organizations in later years. Right. Um, can we talk about, because we, we fought so hard for independence and then when we got it, we were kind of like blinded by, I think it was in the book, you said you're kind of blinded by the light and we, and we realised it was quite, there was some unintended consequences or repercussions that were going to come with our own independence, self-sufficiency, which which was a, which, you know, it, was, it wasn't going to be as easy potentially, well, not that we thought it was going to be easy, but it, 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 it was quite dire and it could have gotten worse. Now, given we were so close to the UK, do you think that they cast a large shadow in terms of when you think about Irish businesses um, and a lack of self-confidence because the UK and the great conquering Great Britain and, you know, the, the, the ruler of nations and everything. We just had a little bit of an inferiority complex as Irish business. Did, did, was there a sense that we didn't think we were good enough for that? We And particularly I see this in advertising as well, that what, what did we have that collective lack of, of self-confidence and was it justified, do you think? It's self, lack of self-confidence I don't think is ever justified, but I agree we did have a huge lack of self-confidence. In fact, I go so far as to say we suffered for a long, long time from what is now called imposter syndrome. Mm. You know, that you actually qualify on your own merit, but because of circumstances in the past, you don't think you deserve to get where you were. And I think we suffered from that for a very long time. And it wasn't really until the 1970s I think that we started getting over that. And it was the 1970s when Irish businesses started uh, thinking not, you know, how can I sell more in Ireland or do more in Ireland or export a little bit? How can we conquer the world? It was the 1970s was the genesis of what we now know as Lambia, the Kerry Group. Ryanair from day one were going to conquer the world. Mm. Uh, And it was, you know, and you could argue that a semi-state body, uh, uh, Kerry Gold and... and, um, and foods and people like that had led the way to some extent. But Irish business began to grow in self-confidence in the late 1970s. And, you know, even down to like a music group before the 1970s would be quite happy to be doing the show show band circuit. You yeah. uh, two were determined that we were going to conquer America from the beginning. So it, it, it was the entire country became more self-confident. And one of the reasons that held, one of the things that held us back was what I would now call imposter syndrome. We didn't think we deserved to be where we were. Mm. There was no reason for that. Well, sorry, the historical reasons for that, but it held us back for a long time. Yeah, well, you, and we, you know confidence. I mean, I was talking about this before, you, you know, and you, you need other people to succeed. I was talking about agencies, creative agencies, and, you know, yeah. our, our performance at, at Cannes, Ever since Rothko won a Grand Prix, it seemed to open a door that give other agencies a lot of belief. And you look back before that, we'd never really done that well. And you see, you know, the four minute mile wasn't broken for years. And when, when Bannister broke it and then it was broken, yeah. you know, it, about every year for the next couple of years, because it gives you belief and that. And so we, we do need that. Um, we do need a bit of we belief. Do. And, you know, I think IAPI deserves some credit there. They have opened, they've really encouraged the Irish marketing communications business to, to, 
to learn, not just to learn from overseas, but to go over there and get business from overseas. Mm. And that's happening more, much more than when I was working mm, yeah. full-time in advertising. They have, they've, they've done a good job in fairness and um, and it can be thankless sometimes, but they have done a good job. Um, we, we have proven to be we can look back and, and say all those things that you talked about how you know the setting up of, of the idea even the, the attraction of foreign direct investment in terms of business we set our sights on growing business we've been quite entrepreneurial in the face of adversity I suppose you have to be um, and in the book in the post-independent era we shed the shackles of anti-intellectualism and we thrived so do you think that we're doing enough now at the moment given given that the UK has the UK has left um the EU and that we're the largest English-speaking nation. Do you think we, we do enough with that? Is there an opportunity again to to further kind of position Ireland um, within the EU as as being a base for more businesses or a headquarter for more businesses? Do you think we make enough of that at the moment? I've no doubt the IDA are, were onto that as soon as Brexit, before Brexit, the, 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 the vote was passed. I'm sure they would have been, they would have been onto that and using that in their, in their sales pitches. Mm-hmm. No doubt about that. And, you know, I think there's huge opportunities there for us. As, as you say, the only, the, the, the English speaking country in the EU. Now, to, in today's world, there's an awful lot of other countries in the EU who are also more or less fully English speaking. So it, it, it has, it's not as big an advantage as it was 30, yeah. 40 years ago. Mm, yeah, possibly. Um so and there's lots and again I've fifty questions and I have to cut them down. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna dip in and out of the book and, yeah, and, sure. and, and as we as we go through and I don't know what particular order I'll do them in, but we we'll try and get through them. But music is obviously important part of any yeah. culture and and in the book you rightly point out that it's probably the most prevalent of 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 culture because it's it's so universally accessible to everybody. It's most universally accessible of all the arts if you will and everybody you know enjoys music not everybody enjoys enjoys everything else. How important was music in our culture? You mentioned you two there. Um and were we seen as I mean music is important to every culture, but would we have been seen as a nation that were that were particularly strong or rich in our in our musical capabilities, would, would we, did we think of ourselves like that, or would that have been true? And others have thought of that. I think both is true. Uh, music was probably the, the 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 art form that we were most famous for for hundreds of years. I mean, there, there are a lot of books written by English intrepid English travellers in the seventeenth and eighteenth century. And what they had to say about Ireland would, you know, was, was was not very nice. They just assumed we were living in, which we were, and many were living in, in extreme poverty, uncivilized, uh, not in any way sophisticated about anything except the music. Right. And even the most anti-Irish English kind of commentator would say there is something particularly sophisticated and incredibly interesting about Irish tradition and there was traditional music. So we have always been known for that. And I think that is, there's also, there's a tradition of, you know, everybody has to sing a song, no matter how awful they are. Uh, and I sometimes ask the class in, in Smurfit, um, think of, you know, if you go into um, a supermarket, multiple overseas, very hard to find all that many Irish brands. It's disappointing, apart from Kelly Gold and one or two others. Yeah. Or if you go into a pub, there's a lot of Irish brands, but there is one 
retail outlet, and that used to be before Spotify, <laughs> one retail outlet where there's a lot of Irish brands all over the place. No matter what part of the world you go to, you will find Irish music brands in all music shops. Yeah. So it is something that we have been particularly good at. And the big factor in what I was writing about in the 1960s was John O'Rea that more or less reinvented that. Uh, the older tradition uh, modernizes a little bit, but the impact of films like Misha Era, uh, the Arena Mass were huge. And I make the point that a band like Horse Lips were actually quite significant because they were the conduit between Arena and younger people who would have been suspicious or uninterested in Irish traditional music. Mm. And they, they, I mean, Bono in various interviews has admitted that there was a debt to Aurea that even in his musical thinking may not have been direct, but he was aware of it. So what Aurea did in the 1960s was reawaken Irish people to the, the sophistication of traditional music, but also to the, giving them a sense of pride in something that we self-evidently did very well compared to other nations. Mm. Yeah, and because it's fascinating, because it's something that we're I, I always wonder, should we lean into that a bit more in terms of the, what, I mean, the industries you want to grow? I was saying it, I, I, I think it's a bit disappointing. I, mean, I don't think that the Irish marketing communications industry makes enough use of Irish music. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I go back to my own experience because I was working on the uh, Bordemona account when we did the Marino Walls, mm. and that had a huge impact yeah. in the 1980s in the country when it was, uh, yeah. when it was launched as an ad. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Um, now, does hindsight, um, or you know, I don't know hindsight, but like you look back and say everything that that we that that was done, um, you know, to attract foreign direct investment seems to have worked. But there's there's skeptics, and of course, there's going to be people who who argue anything, um, particularly in historic in historical terms. So there was some skeptics argued that that the success that we enjoyed, um, the economic success that we enjoyed, was was more due to good fortune and good luck than good planning. So the unintended consequence of everybody emigrating to America during during the, the famine and that kind of stuff just meant we had a lot of um, sympathetic and empathetic people lined up, and and it, it was we're very reliant on a couple of. Um, big investors from America. So, you know, it's quite, I'm slightly being facetious to a degree, but that's called out in the book, right? In the sense that um, we did, we got lucky. Americans investing, they were expats and that's where they came from. And if you look at today, um, you know, even Facebook, uh, Meta, a lot, all the, the, the tech companies that invest here, we do, do you think we're overly, are at risk of being too reliant on those people? And particularly because you see what's going on in, in, the, in the news, like we are inviting them in on the one hand and then, we are in, we're enforcing heavy fines on them. Do, do, do you think, what do you think about that, the, the, the skeptics who said that we, you know, we, it was more about good luck than good planning. What do you think? Is that fair? I don't believe that. I don't believe, I don't believe that for a minute. I think that's, uh, that is not giving half enough credit to the IDA who did plan. Hmm. You know, they had very careful planning. And I would like to say that there was very good advertising, which we did in America for the, the whole Young Europeans campaign had a huge impact in America. Mm. So it was well planned. It wasn't a matter of luck that we got, you know, we were fortunate in that there was at that time a number of Irish immigrants or, you know, Irish first generation got to good positions in American business. But, you know, the numbers of people involved of that cohort 
who were responsible for bringing investment into Ireland was tiny. Mm. Uh, that, the, that success was due to extremely hard work and also creativity from the IDA. And there was also um, and there was a whole government effort. I mean, we were involved for the IDA ads. When, when Ireland joined the EU, I think it was the, the original EEC and the Irish government organised, and the IDA obviously and the Irish government, that about there were about 60 ads in the New York Times that day yeah. on the Wall Street Journal. And we were coordinating, and there were every single Irish company put an ad in that day saying we're open for business, we're in Europe and we welcome you over there. So it was a huge national mm. effort. It was also highly creative. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was quite an innovative thing to do. No other country's ever done that. No, uh, no, absolutely. And it, it makes a statement. Absolutely. It does make... Sorry, it was the Wall Street Journal there, right. not the New York Journal. The Wall yeah. Street Journal. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's very creative. Um, and it does announce... It announces you're open for business in a, in a in a fairly impressive and large scale way, and thanks a lot of coordination yeah. and planning. So fair play um, for them for, for every for every single page in the Wall Street Journal that day had an ad from some Irish body. Mm. Yeah, it's incredible. And some Irish company or state body, and to even financially to 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 do that, it'd be like yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's incredible. Um, I have a background in economics when I was in UCD, and, and economics can be can be quite confusing to a degree. I mean, even recently, like we've been told, there's no there was no recession, but it felt to people like there was a recession. There was there was you know there was heating grants given to people, but on a macro level, we were told there was there was no recession. It was all fine. And when your book talks about our booming economy in terms of our GDP, but you also talk about some of the softer power measures. So, um, can you when you look at Ireland through that lens in terms around the, the distribution of wealth? How prosperous is Ireland and how misleading is a, is a, a, a booming and kind of um, our, our GDP figure? Is it a good measure of, our, of our, our social prosperity, if you will? No, GDP is never a good measure. Unfortunately, it's the only one that's ever used. So it's the only one that people talk about. But um, you mentioned soft power there. And that is a major factor, in my opinion. I think we, are, we have a, an enormous reservoir of soft power. And I'm sometimes sort of surprised that Irish businesses don't use that more. People like Ireland, mm. uh, you know, more so than you, we have a higher, somebody said our gross likability factor is higher than our gross national product. Right. Now, that's a huge asset. The fact that you can't measure it in figures all that well means that it tends not to be commented on. But if I was running an Irish company and, and you know trying to export, I'd be using that factor uh, to its ultimate degree. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right, and it's hard. But it's it's part of the the times in which we live. You know that, that old adage of you can't measure it, then you know it's it's pointless. So, but how that's the it, most ridiculous adage of all I know, time. I know. It's there's it. a lot of things you can't measure. Uh, that are very important and there's a lot of things you can measure that, that are, are not important at all and but how do we so uh, although the economy is doing well and GDP is a, a, it's it's an acceptable measure um, but how do we yeah. how do we fare in terms of the distribution of wealth in terms of the in, in terms of our our people do we, versus other countries well, like are we, we are we the, good the or bad would, yeah the figures would suggest we're about halfway in, in terms of certainly in terms of Europe that in terms of equality um, we're, we're about halfway. Uh, the go successive governments over the years 
have done a reasonable amount of redistribution uh, in ter- to people who are less well off in terms of social welfare and stuff like that. Uh, Irish wage levels, however, are very low compared with a lot of other countries. And that drags us down a bit in terms of equality. The problem, of course, is all over the world. Uh, inequality is growing and is mm. creating major problems. And there doesn't seem to be anybody doing an awful lot about it. Uh, and it is one, it's just causing frustration all over the world at the moment. It's one of the reasons you get some pretty undemocratic tendencies coming in in a lot of places. It probably was a major factor in Brexit. Uh, so it's just people feeling dissatisfied but not knowing what to do about it. And part of that is the amazing growth in inequality. So you've seen a lot of figures like 30 years ago, let's say the difference between what the, the, the top guys in companies were getting and the average wage would have been about, they would get about 30 times more. Yeah. They're now getting 300 times more. Yeah, yeah. So obviously there is people are feeling dissatisfied and there was a problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. we're no, you know, we're, we're we're sort of we're not we're not an outlier in that area. We're just along with the rest. Mm. Um, but it is a problem. And uh, Martin Wolf, the economic uh, political correspondent or editor in the Financial Times, who's written a lot of books over the years uh, in praise of capitalism and globalization and all the rest of it. His latest book, the the crisis of democratic capitalism, which came out this year is really, you can almost hear him crying as, as he's typing it out. Mm-hmm. He's so annoyed at the degree of inequality that has been allowed to happen. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, it's, it, and we can, we'll get into that a little bit more, but I, I, I want to just go back to something. So as we... Uh, we, we we lost our our cultural identity, if you will. I mean, I'm, you know, we're the, the largest English speaking, native English speaking country in the EU. We don't even speak our own language, so we did. We lost our cultural identity and our and our. I think the way you put the way you phrase it in the book, our collective sense of spiritualism, um, and we adopted we adopted a deepened sense of materialism and consumerism, um, capitalism, if you will. So. You can look back on that, you know, from a fairly romanticized view of the world and say it's 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 terrible that we've lost our cultural identity. But it's more than that, actually, because some of the, the commentators argued that that we would be w- with this kind of heightened consumerism and um, materialism comes some some pretty bad things as, as we lose those spiritual values. What type of things happened and how did we change? Well, I think this is a this is a phenomenon that we see all over the world. Uh, that you know, excessive consumerism or excessive concentration on and that's again it's on GDP. And if that is the sole measure of a nation's progress, then it probably isn't such a good idea. Um, having said that, I don't. I wouldn't be all that completely pessimistic that we've lost our sense of identity. Mm. Um, you wouldn't have predicted 20 years ago that the GAA would be as powerful in Dawkey as they were in Dingle. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a completely, you wouldn't have predicted the number of Gaelskullna and the queues to get into those schools. And I think you will, I would, I would be confident that there will be more of a revival in the Irish language than I think is predicted at the moment. Mm. And I, I'm sure you're familiar certainly, with sorry, certainly the ability. I, I remember an economic, sorry, an economic commentator was given a big speech recently 
in some business, you know, private business meeting. And he said, what's going to be the most fashionable accessory in 10 years time? And but he, nobody got the answer. The answer was an ability to speak Irish. Right. Yeah. Well, it's great, and uh, like I, I'm sure you're familiar with the the official language act that the gov- that the government have introduced, and in a bid to to try and you know at least support a, a revival or, or yep. its 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 use and culture. Now, I, I think the sentiment is brilliant. There, I'm not sure the execution is right because um, it's it's a it's a tax on certain companies. Um, and like anything else, it's seen as a mandatory thing that they have to do. You know, given tax reliefs have fueled the economy and and, and drove a lot of our the resurgence of our of our yeah. of our, our yeah. country. I, I thought it would. I think it would have been better if they offered tax breaks um, to certain industries or even to for companies who created advertising in Ireland. So then you might have Heineken fragments like making an Irish ad for the one to make an Irish ad, as opposed to the semi-state companies being forced to do so but nobody else has to what do you think about the, yeah. about how they've executed that I I mean I'm, I agree with you I don't think it's a good idea to force people into that I, I think it would be worth pointing out to Heineken that they might gain a, a huge advantage in mm. having more Irish in their advertising yeah yeah because that's the way I would put it I don't think it should be done it should, people should be penalised for not doing it but I think people should be encouraged. Should it, they should recognise that there may be a competitive advantage in doing it? Yeah, yeah. I'm convinced there would be. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I just think that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the sentiment, the idea behind it, is right. I just think they probably it's a it's it's a blunt instrument that they've they've applied. Yeah, yeah. We shouldn't use that. And we've seen from the compulsory Irish in in schools and stuff that that's not really no, worth it. No, no, absolutely not. Um, you talk about globalization in the in the book quite a lot, um, and you use a term which seems like it's it's uh, counterintuitive. But you say globalization is a paradox of diversity. What do you mean by that? Can you explain that to me? Well, I think it, it does, globalization does two things. First of all, it, it it introduces us and introduces everybody else to uh, trade and culture and direct visiting and tourism to all over the world. But in doing so, it kind of makes the world very similar. So while on the one hand, you're showing the diversity of the world, you're actually making the world smaller uh, by, I think you mentioned, you know, having the same sort of shops. There's a lot, there's much more similarity in the high streets of capital cities in Europe than there would have been uh, 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, And I think we'd probably see it turning away from that. Yeah. Now, partly because globalization facilitates global retail outlets and global chains of shops and and other you know restaurants and so on i think that's a pity but uh, i think there's an opportunity there for irish companies to you know to make a, a greater point of their of irish cuisine for instance and and things like that yeah because it is you're right you see it i mean i don't know um... The George Bernard Shaw ran the, up the road from Musk closes, and, and you just see, you know, international hotel chains opening, or Weatherspoons replacing the traditional Irish pub, and yes, yeah, and yeah. I, I don't know. See, it's a, it's a slow and gradual kind of thing that just, and I don't know when it dawned on me. I think it was when it was the, the George Bernard Shaw was closing down because there was a big petition online for people to say, you know, enough was enough, and it gained a bit of traction. I, you know, I think. Yeah, I just, it, it's a, we are becoming, we do look a lot as a kind of monoculture, if you will, where it's a European, it's just the way, the way the world is, but it's hard, to, it's hard to fight against that. And, you know. The, yeah, it's, it's a complex area, but I think 
uh, if you check out with um, Tourism Ireland, you know, tourists still see a distinct difference in Ireland and, and Irish culture when they visit here. Yeah. So we it, that, that may not be as obvious to us as it is to a stranger coming in. True, true. Um, and you say that, that then in the book again, that the, that the world changed uh, in December 1999 and the, the dawn of the, the new millennium. So what what kind of things happened? Um, what, what were these changes and... It wasn't just the, the well, turning of a new... The of big a, change, yeah. The big change I was referring to was the digital age. I was just loosely giving that that was the start of the digital age. And certainly that has changed an awful lot of things, as we know, to our benefit and our cost. Um, it's made it very challenging for advertising and for the marketing communications industry. But they seem to have fought back quite well. Um, but that was the change I was referring to. Mm. And the proliferation of data started coming in from then as well, which in the one way has given us huge tools for measurement and effectiveness. On the other hand, it's drowned us out with information. Um, There was a a paper written around that time, 1999, when I made that point, uh, and it said we are going to have to have a choice, the proliferation of the, the amount of data and information. We can either know, we know more and more, about less and less, or less and less about more and more. Mm. But it's very difficult for anyone in in this day and age to be able to cope with the flow of information and the amount of data that's coming through, and that's causing problems. Yeah, no, no absolutely. And I, you know, n- n- in very my industry, we have people with the, the amount of data that's generated from every click and everything in a digital space. Exactly. We spend our time like. You know, God, people coming in and they're they're just drowned in Excel work, and you can't you can't get any insight from data that that you're looking at too short a time horizon on. There's no insight from it. It needs to aggregate and kind of yeah flow for a little while before you can get any well, real insight. In our business, it risks people going down very narrow little rabbit holes uh, in formulating you know creative material and and yeah. Communication plans. It's very hard to get an overview anymore. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. I totally agree. Um, and what, on that note, what do you, what do you, where do you stand on this kind of the tension between data and creativity, or, or what we see today like brand versus performance? Where, what's your position yeah. on that? Where do you stand? Oh, well, on that? You need the data. There's no. I mean, you, can, you have to have it, and effectiveness has become, you know, more important to prove. Um, I think. The problem that has been, and it's been well documented over the last 20 years, is it has resulted in a lot of businesses taking a much more short-term view, particularly in the development of their brands. Mm. So it's much easier to measure a short-term promotion and its effects look quite good for a while uh, without thinking of the long-term consequences of that brand. And you are weakening the brand all the time if you concentrate on short-term promotions. And that's been well documented in yeah. the work of Les Burnett and Peter Field and, and other people. I gather from the CAM uh, gig that's going on at the moment, is it on, still on this week? I think it's a, it might be just wrapped up now or it's at the tail end of it. Yeah, but there, was a, there was a feature at it called the third age, I have written it down here, uh, the third age of effectiveness. And apparently there is some evidence that there's a move back to more long-term brand building, storytelling in particular, 
and you know accepting the fact that it takes a while to build a brand that the immediate effects are not going to be as dramatic as a short-term promotion, but in the long run, you'll have a much more valuable business. Yeah. Now, it's not entirely the fault of the marketing communications business. So, you know, the, the financialization of business and the impact of financial institutions on business has driven short-term thinking, in my opinion. Mm. There's no doubt about that. The concentration on, if you're concentrating all the time on your share price, you are not concentrating on building your business for the long term. And unfortunately, good marketing communications is more about building a business in the long term than satisfying the the, the share price of the higher earners. Yeah, yeah, and it is. And when, and when you're when you, when you're kind of quarterly is the way you measure your performance of your exactly. company. When it's quarterly, yeah. say, you know, mark performance and you're doing quarterly uh, updates, it's just... I mean, as Mark Ritson says, that like the long term isn't isn't the stitching together of low to short term horizons. No. It's not how it works, but that's the way we think. But, uh, yeah, but I think it's just, it's it's significant that one of the more progressive of the big public companies is Unilever, yeah. and they've stopped quarterly reporting precisely for that reason. Yeah. It's putting too much pressure on the manager and taking their eye off long term development. And also because, like, we, we like human beings being human beings, like. Take Unilever, for example, like they do have a, um, they move people around quite a bit, right? So they move from brand to brand, which I get that and you see it in any big company. And it's one of the great things you can go off and you can work in a, in a, a market abroad. But like, if if you know you're not going to be there in that role, on that brand, in this market, right. in, in like two years time, and really it's in your interest to maximize your performance and your bonus related performance by doing a load of short term stuff. And then because you're not going to get the benefit of it, or unless exactly. everybody pays it forward. Like you're relying on on the on the person who's in the job. You're going to be doing the right thing now. So it, it the bonus culture and the the way we move yeah. people around and 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 hire and shift people on and the tenure of CMOs. It's all doomed to failure to live it's, in the short it's term. Very bad. And that can only be corrected by the people at the very top of the business. They have to put a stop to that. Which is why I admire Unilever for putting a stop to quarterly reports. Yeah, that's. But it, it also means that you've got a generation of, in some cases, senior marketing people who are not entirely as conversant as they should be with the power of marketing communication to transform their business. So they will, they, they, they take the easy option of a quick promotion and you get a quick sales increase. Yeah. And it, uh, even, we've, uh, even, I don't know, a couple of months ago, we've seen Tesla go down that route of, of, of discounting cars which is kind of the first yeah. it's, and it's a it's a it's a huge huge mistake because it's a slippery slope once that starts because that starts to but you start seeing uplift but you piss everybody off who bought one you know all your customers who bought one off in the well, last I, I gather it just started a normal mainstream branding campaign though which I think is good news yeah well, I mean it is good news it's great news I mean it's, it's a classic example of like Get, get him, get Elon Musk back, back, focus on what he's good at instead of this kind of madness, this rabbit hole he's gone down in, in Twitter. But look, he's, he's, nobody in the room is going to tell him anything that he doesn't want to hear. Um, th there has been, it's all quite depressing in a sense of the inequality and the distribution of wealth and and the, the unintended consequences, I've said that for the third time, of, of capitalism and, and um, overt consumerism. There has been a kind of a change in, in culture or, or certainly in understanding that business impact on society not just not just maximizing um shareholder value that there's been some some rethinking of that and yeah. and uh, now do you yeah. think talk to me a little bit about that do you th is it too hard now to put the genie back in the bottle once once it's out once you've got companies like meta and google 
can we go back? Will they go back? Can we put it back in the bottle, do you think? I think it's going to be difficult for companies like Meta and Google, but I think more of the bigger company, your more established companies, have realized that, first of all, they need a greater sense. I mean, I think climate change has been a big, uh, a, a big factor here. The fact that you have to take account of sustainability means that's one block of maximizing shareholder revenue that has to be taken out. Now, once you've taken one out, you can take more. The next one will be maybe companies need a higher purpose and con- to, to concentrate on, on, on more taking more societal issues into account than just climate change. So once you start, once climate change becomes a factor in companies' thinking, then maybe other societal factors will also become. And so I would be quite optimistic that it will be a big change in 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 business thinking, mm. and it, that's also a huge. Um, uh, potential huge advantage for the marketing communications business because they're going to have to communicate this kind of change in the way they're operating and that will require very creative communication to make that uh, to make an impact yeah hopefully hopefully um so you've had a you've you've had a, a great career in advertising so i want to and it's a really tough question but well two tough questions first question is what what did you work on what what i'm not talking about um Charity or, or, or societal work, mm. but co- commercial work, private private ad campaigns you worked on. What work were you involved in that maybe directly or within the agency that you just were most proud of creatively or for whatever reason? What, what, what's your highlight if there is such a thing? Yeah, well, I've already updated the, the IDA campaigns. I don't know they were institutional, but they were very creative. The mm. press campaigns that we created for America, uh, particularly the famous ad with all the graduates and it was the headline that was the critical thing hire them before they hire you that was a classic example of increasing irish self-confidence we weren't going over to america to say please open a factory in ireland we're going to say if you don't open a factory in ireland we're going to come over here and take your jobs now that was a complete change and shows the power of brilliant copy Mm. Uh, the, the campaigns that sort of i've come to mind more than anything else would be campaigns that featured good copy. And I was, you know, traveling around the place and looking at outdoor ads at the moment and looking at ads here, there and everywhere. There's some pretty appalling copy yeah. with the most cliched language uh, that you could possibly think of. Yeah. And like, I'm sure you're familiar with um, Orlando Woods work. And like, yeah. And like, and yeah. We are human beings. We like, we like, um, we like stories. to be entertained. We like stories. It's just how our brains are wired. And yet, so it seems really obvious, right? But why why do why does why do we not do more storytelling? Why do you think um that that the industry collectively, or naming anybody or, or anything like that or any yeah. brands, why don't we do more of it? Because when it when it, when it's done well, it really stands out. Like when when you see a great piece well, of copy. You take, yeah. If you take the Barry's Tea ad that's repeated every Christmas for the last 20 or 30 years, I mean, that stood the test of time. Yeah. And it's a long story and people are involved in it. It's almost a sign that Christmas is here when that ad appears first. Um, I think, I don't know what the reason is. I think it's, again, it's the short-term thing. But I would, if, if I was working in an agency now, I'd be encouraging clients to take more risk 
with radio to tell stories mm-hmm. because I think radio is, is, is a relatively low cost. Yeah. So it's not got a huge, it's not like you've got to invest a huge amount in a, in a TV production. And once you get them to show how successful radio can be, then you can maybe get them to be a bit more ambitious about um, the yeah. visual stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. Cause you but see- it is a problem. I think there's a reluctance to, to, to take a risk. Yeah, because you see, I don't know whether it's a, again to do the case that like we, we seem to be in a model of we'll we'll pre- we'll present the facts, the rational um, information yeah. to people through advertising, and they'll figure it out. And it it's not that people aren't stupid, obviously, but like we give people an awful lot of credit. I like I don't know you. It probably hasn't changed when we sit in 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 meetings with clients and we talk at pains about about their product and like like lookbooks and the amount of work we put into it. And, the, and consumers don't think about brands all that much, but they do like to be entertained. They do like to be um, yeah. connected with. And I think we, we we give consumers way too much credit that they're these deeply rational people being, and if presented with the right information or whatever, they will do what we'd like them to do. And that never happens. People rarely do what they say in focus groups, as, as you well know. Well, that's true. And the other thing is, I mean, the the... the factual functional differences between most of the top five products in most categories are so low Mm. that really you do have to entertain in some way, tell a story. I'm surprised that more Irish companies don't tell the story of where they're from. Uh, You know, all Irish places have incredible stories behind them. Uh, I'm surprised that more Irish companies don't play that factor up a little bit. Now some do, but not enough do. Yeah, because because uh, not is. enough. You're right. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, yeah, and it's hard. It's, it's something that I've seen, and it comes up quite a lot in this podcast. And yet, I I don't know because we we've never had we've never had more uh, evidence to prove that long term works, to prove that storytelling works. Like it, it it's yeah. now it's a, and sometimes what happens is I don't know why, but a, a client may say, "Yeah, that's grand." my category or my brand isn't like that. that that's not going to work. And like it works. It's universally true. The IPA studies, everything, you know, Orlando yes, Woods work, yeah. system Woods work, everything, everything points to if you do this, it will work. But yet everyone seems to think that, yeah, that's not going to work for me or they don't believe it. I just, and I don't know what, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, I as Rinson says, the, the short term, there, without the short term, there is no long term. So maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think there are some people who do it well. Just when you talk about place there, Inish Man is a very small brand, but it's a very high quality fashion brand. Mm-hmm. And its entire communication is about storytelling from the island. Mm. Uh, and it's beautifully done. It doesn't cost an awful lot of money. It's mainly on their website. Uh, but it's, it's based on pride in where they came from. Yeah. Uh, now, I think to be gunpowder gin are doing that as well with drum shambo yeah uh putting drum shambo in the map was not a bad idea yeah i know it was always a funny thing because i worked in push mills years ago and i can't remember who was saying it i don't know what campaign they were making it doesn't matter but i remember jimmy murphy um who was in publicist and, and he was saying like it's the oldest whiskey it's the oldest distillery in the world i don't know why you're not making more of a big deal about this like everyone else you have that and you're not making enough of it and I that know. provenance yeah. and it's just like because only one whiskey can be the oldest distillery in the world and they, they just didn't do anything with it it was mental that they just didn't i don't know it wasn't fashionable or i don't know why um possibly i'm not going to keep it too much longer but this could be a really unfair question so i can i can let you have a think about it um 
what do you like? It's very easy because I sit here and I do it all the time. We can we can give out about uh, you know advertising is not as good as it used to be. And do you, have you seen any brand doing anything that you thought that's pretty smart? I like what they're doing relatively recently. Who's doing good stuff in your eyes? Um, I think I know it has won a lot of awards. I think three have been very successful in for a number of reasons in their advertising. First of all. Uh, they, they, it's very Irish. They do concentrate on on the Irish, and they had the the island story. Yeah, but the ad with the the son of the farmer communicating with the farmer on the farm through the mobile, yeah, and, you know, pictures and all the rest of it. And the bit that I like most of all when he says, "How are you?" to the father, and the father says, "Instead of giving chapter and verse, you know yourself." Yeah, yeah. that is just Asher, you know yourself. Yeah. That sums up what really good copy is about because it speaks volumes. Yeah. I mean, what he's actually saying is, look, I've got pains and aches and places I never knew existed. I'm coping. And by the way, son, you're going to have those same yeah. pains and aches. It's wonderfully, uh, wonderfully subtle and just everybody can... It's a, yeah, it's a, you can work anything out you like on it, but it's very it's a very Irish line. Yeah, um, yeah true. And I quite like that the new Aer Lingus line, uh, you're very welcome. Mm. I mean, it's not going, it's not sort of trying to be smart or anything like that, but it's again, it's classically Irish and it does distinguish Aer Lingus yeah. in a, I'm, I suspect they may, there may be a factor there that they're playing on that, yes, Aer Lingus probably would welcome me more than other airlines. So it's, it's that kind of copy that gets under the skin of people. Mm. Uh, that I think it would attract me most. Yeah, no, you're right. And and again, examples of leaning into what you're about in Aer Lingus, because leaning into your Irishness and what makes you unique. And because it is, it is, you that's are. That's the only thing are. that is unique about them. Exactly. You know? And it's the same in most, like you, and you said it a couple of minutes ago, like most products are copyable. There's very little difference between, and Byron Sharp talks about this, he says, look, you can't really differentiate. You can differentiate at a at a product level sometimes, but that's not marketing's job. Marketing can be distinctive. Yeah. Um, and I don't yeah. think there's enough yeah. done of that. Um, well, John, it's been an absolute pleasure. I promised you I wouldn't keep you too long, but I really appreciate taking taking the time, first of all, for for coming on and chatting to me and and uh, yeah, and, and being patient with me as I tried to rattle through 20 questions or whatever I tried to try to get through. And and yeah, so I really enjoyed it. And just before I let you go, what's what are you up to for the next? What's the next couple of months look like for you? Are you working on anything? You're not. Are you writing any more books, or or what's the plan? Uh, I'm trying to write a bit more, but I don't want to go into it at the moment in case it doesn't work out for me. But I am, yeah. But anyway, I'm going to be going down to Connemara next week, and I'll be there for another couple of about until August. Yeah. Right, you didn't you didn't head over to Cannes, no? You weren't over there, no? Join the advertising. You're not going to believe this, Dave. I never got to Cannes. I mean, like, I not? never got further than Ardmore. Oh, for God's sake! I, what am I talking about? I never went. To, I went to Cannes. I didn't go for the ad thing. I went on holidays there a couple of weeks after, um, and I was surprised the place didn't look a mess because Adland had only left. I think put put the tents up about two days beforehand, and I got there and it looked it looked fine. No, I've never been for. For, oh no, I've, I've been to Cannes, all yeah. right, for other reasons. But not, but not, not you didn't not, make it for, yeah. you didn't make it for your, no, your advertising career. Court. No, ah well, no. ah well, it's not that great anyway. Anyway, well, John, listen, it has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks, thanks a million, John. 
So yes, thank you, John. Thanks for taking the time. And thanks to you for listening. If you like that episode, why not listen back to any of our ever-growing back catalogue? You'll find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. Thanks to Kira and Kadisha on marketing. And thanks to Andrea and Sound. And thanks, as always, to our partners in the Irish Times Media Solutions. So until next time, have a good weekend. The Inside Marketing Podcast. Brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.